Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius and Finding Genius Foundation. I'm talking to Crispin Given. Uh, he's an apiculture specialist at Purdue University, apiculture uh, relating to bees. So, Crispin, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Great. Nice to be here. Yeah, tell me, what, what got you into bees? Well, um, as a child, I was really curious about nature and moving things, insects especially. So my first great love was ants, little, these little paver ants that we're all familiar with, Tetramorium to be specific. And I used to make ant farms and keep those in my bedroom and things like that. So I, was, I found an interest in ants early and then honeybees came into my life at about the age of nine. My dad kept bees. So I also became a beekeeper early in life and was just fascinated by the society, how it works together as far as the behaviors go. So what, what has been the uh, focus of your research on bees as of late? What are you looking at? I joined Purdue University in 2013, and my primary role there is extension and honeybee breeding. So I'm in charge of the honeybee breeding program still to this day. So our overall goal is just improving the, the health of honeybees because, as we all know, you, honeybees are, and native pollinators are facing many challenges. So it's, it's kind of a conglomeration of things. It's not simply just one thing versus the other. But the, you know, most researchers today, the consensus is among them, you know, varroa destructors, this parasitic mite is by far the biggest problem associated with colony mortality in Western societies and basically globally. So we're trying to figure out solutions to help that. So... So are you focused more on the breeding and, and making sure that's optimized? Are you focused more on diseases affecting bees or which one is it? All of those, but prim- primarily we're breeding on um, beha- behavioral traits to reduce varo- the impact of varroa. For example, a lot of beekeepers today are using miticides or even certain pesticides in their, their colonies to reduce these mites. So behavioral solutions are better in my opinion, because I'm a bee breeder, and it helps reduce, you know, the, the impact of those pesticides used in colonies. So we're looking at mite biting right now. That's, it's, you can kind of think of it as a hierarchical breeding program. So we look at mite biting and grooming behavior, and then we also look at other traits that we want to have in our bees. For example... What do you mean mite biting? You mean in grooming? You mean that other... Some bees will bite the mites off other bees or will groom them off of them. Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. So this is behavioral trait, and it's a recessive trait for you geneticists out who probably already know that. But it's a trait that is heritable. So, for example, what we do is we, we take colonies and we place sticky boards under each colony's bottom board, and then we collect mites that drop within 48 hours for you. And we bring those back to the lab, and then we look at them under a 5X microscope. And you look at those, our 15X microscope, 
and you look at these mites and then we, we determine which ones have damage to them from the, the honeybees themselves. So we can actually select colonies that have higher proportions of these chewed mites. So what I mean by chewed is the legs of the mites will often be bitten or chewed off. And sometimes the shell or the idiosoma of the mite itself will be chewed. And for me, that's more aggressive. So our more vigorous chewing behavior. So then these traits can be selected through instrumental insemination where we uh, speed up the, the process of selection through. Well, does, this, uh, does this biting kill them or is it just disable them and make them fall off or what happens? Yeah, if, they, if the mites are bitten and a leg is removed, they, they bleed out pretty much. They're hemolymph, they die, they desiccate. And they're also identified by the, the workers too. Once they're damaged, if there's hemolymph in the darkness of the hive, the workers are attracted to the hemolymph, so of course they bite the mite more, and then they eventually they just evict it out of the colony. They fly off with. It. How about um, what if you're able to spray in some hemolymph into a hive that was infected with varroa mites? Do you think that would increase the uh, the attacks on the varroa mites and get rid of more of them? I don't know. I don't. Well, why not? Yeah, I guess somebody's probably there's a grad student working on that right now somewhere, maybe. But they're definitely attracted more. I, I think with a bleeding, a hemp hemolymph. Yeah. I, again, I thought about like sharks with blood in the water. Maybe it was an analog. So that's why I suggested it. Yeah. It's more oh. of a behavioral, it's more of a response to the movement of the mite. Because in the darkness of the hive, the mites are cryptic that they, they can't really, the honeybees can't smell the mites, but they can detect I, their I, movements. So we're, the mite biting bees, for example, are, they're more responsive to movements on them. So if there's a mite, you think of, it's like basically having something the size of your fist sucking blood on you and vectoring viruses. So when they detect that movement, then they groom and then they'll recruit grooming from other bees. So some bees groom better than others. So we've selected for high groomers. So we basically take the high queens and high drones, the best two colonies, and we, we cross those. So we just simply select high to high in our breeding program. How do you know that it's the movement, not the smell of the mites? Because of the the uh, the mites are they're cryptic, pretty much. They they're able they produce they don't produce any smells that the bees can detect, really, unless they're maybe maybe like sometimes in the case of uh, VSH they they can detect certain sicknesses in bees. I'm not really sure with them. What about the the mites? You know, when they excrete waste, I would bet that the bees can. You know, what does that look like? You know, what does mite waste look like? Does it build up? Do the bees see that or smell that? And maybe that's another signal. They're just like the hemolymph. Yeah, I mean, what, so there's another strain of honeybees that's been worked on that are called VSH, varroa sensitive hygiene, or SMR. They used to call them suppression mite reproduction. So there's a group of researchers that developed a honeybee strain that can detect smells so they can actually smell out different anomalies and a sickness in a brood. They, they don't necessarily smell the mites, but they, still, they smell the infection as a result of the mites vectored viruses, for example, like a deformed wing virus. DWV is probably the number one virus that's causing colony mortality. So they're able to detect the smells also. Oh, and only certain bees are able to detect what the smell of the mite or the smell of their excretions or yeah, what do you think it is? To a degree, yeah. Some of them have a higher propensity than others. So you can select for that. We call it VSA behavior. 
where do mites live in the off season? You know, when they're not attacking bees, like do they form colonies? Like where, what's their lifestyle like? In the wintertime, they're basically taxiing on the bees themselves. So the, the varroa destructor can feed on the, the living bee itself, also not just in the cell, on the larvae. So they basically just are sticking on top of the, the bees in the cluster. So the winter cluster keeps them alive in the wintertime. They have a... Where do they stay? Do they, I mean, besides being in beehives, obviously, where are they found in the wild? Are there mice nests? They're an an obligate parasite. So they're strictly on the bees. So if the colony dies in the wintertime, the mice will die. Oh, so they're not found really anywhere in the wild on their own. They've just been living with bees for who knows how long. Yeah, they originally started on Asian honeybees. These are, they're, they're biologically different than Apis mellifera, the honeybees we have here. And they're, they're actually, they're good groomers also, but they only can reproduce in a drone group with the Asian bees. So Varroa Destructor now is able to reproduce also in worker brood, but they prefer the drone brood because it's, there's a longer period for reproduction with mites. Uh, how do the mites reproduce? Like, do, are there multiple ones that bite onto a certain bee and then they hook up while they're feeding or do they drop off to mates or like what, what, what is their life cycle like? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's an interesting question. To simplify it, basically it's a founder's mite or a mother mite. Will, she'll invade a cell just after this, just before the cell is capped. And she will form a, a family in her. So she'll, she'll let, if she's successful, a lot of times some mites just aren't reproductively successful they, for whatever reason. So she'll invade the cell and she'll lay, you know, five eggs. And the first egg that she lays is a male. So the males never leave the cell. They stay in the cell. So she'll have, there'll be one male and say four females. So they're haploid diploid like honeybees. So what happens is the male might, well, he'll mate with his sisters. So in a lot of cases, if that happens, those new mites that are, that are mated, the, those four, the four sister mites, that they will be the future generation of mites so they reproduce pretty quickly okay they reproduce pretty quickly like how long and again like does it happen on a bee you know is it would a pregnant female just stay on a bee feeding or do they go off the bee and you know carve out a little area inside of a hive to hang out that's protected somehow like where do they go they invade a cell when she's ready to lay her eggs she always goes into a, a cell and then she lays the eggs there and reproduction of the mites happens there. Oh, and you say a cell, like a honeycomb cell? Yeah, that's made yeah, they, yeah so there'd be thou- you know, hundreds of mites reproducing at one time. Like in the springtime, a lot of times if, if a beekeeper is monitoring their mites, which I encourage them to do, is you'll find in the springtime most of the mites will be 
under the surface of the cell of a honeybee colony. So the, they'll be inside of a cell that has a pupa in it. So it's feeding on the pupa. And, the, and any mite that's successful at, that has mated and is successful at reproduction will lay the eggs and continue that way. But it's horrible. It's like the movie Aliens, you know? Yeah. So what we're focused on is selecting for mite biting behavior. So that's a different trait than VSH trait at Purdue. So we're trying to... Okay get bees that reduce the varroa population through grooming and mite biting. So if you couple like GSH behavior and other another successful breeding programs efforts and results and you cross that maybe with the mite biting, you that would be a good hybrid bee to work with that would help reduce the impact of varroa destructor. Well I heard there's like grids or gauntlets or something that the bees have to kind of wiggle through to get into the hive, you know, that can be placed. Yeah, there's um, been maybe, maybe that would would that shave off the mites off of them or shear them off? Is there any, any yeah, way to mechanically do something? Anything that's successful. There's some people have tried certain gadgets, but I'm not aware of anything that's successful. It's it's very difficult. There's still a lot of challenges, even with you know, the pesticides or miticides that are available and the breeding programs that are out there like ours that have bees that help combat the varroa, it's still the ma- a major problem. We're still trying to find solutions. But so, even the good groomers and the ones that are, you know, I think you call them VSH, the hygienic ones, what happens to their, you know, those bee hives? I mean, are they functional? Do they just die slower? Or do they groom the mites so effectively that they have no problem? Well, with, with the mite biting bees... We've found that, you know, there's fewer mites reproducing in the colony because the colonies are grooming the bees off or grooming the mites and biting them and killing them. So there's like in the springtime, sometimes when we're monitoring our colonies, we we have like 115 colonies. You need to have at least 100 colonies to have a breeding program. So a lot of times we don't have enough mites because grooming so well and mite biting, but still... As the season progresses, your mite populations are going to increase. So generally in the fall, after honey production in July in our area here in Indiana, we remove all our supers. That's when you'll start seeing, you know, the higher populations of mites. And in some cases, you know, you'll beekeepers will see what they call crawlers. These are these are sick bees that are crawling on the ground. So you can kind of think of varroa instructor as a dirty hypodermic needle. So it's basically, it's not what you really see in the colony, the mite itself on the bees. It's what you don't see. It's the viruses that's causing mortality. So a lot of times in the fall, if you have a lot of DWV, deformed winged virus, you'll see crawling bees that are sick because they want to get away from the colony when they're sick. So they're crawling around. And if you have a large number of bees colonies in one area, that can cause problems through drifting or robbing if your healthy colonies rob out those sick colonies, for example, they're dying, then it transmits the virus to your healthy colonies. So it's very devastating in some cases, especially some of the commercial industry. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I don't know, what's your sense of uh, what would be a breakthrough with your work? I mean, like how, how hygienic? How much of grooming behavior needs to be bred into bees so that their colonies can, you know, survive and thrive? Does it need to be extreme or even just a little bit of uh, you know, upregulation in grooming behavior or hygienic behavior was, is enough? Yeah, I mean, right now we've achieved about, 
our highest has been around 50% mite biting. But there's, again, you have to remember there's other traits that we're selecting too. You don't want to, it's very imperative that you don't select just on one trait. Because if you do that, you can lose a lot of the good qualities like honey production, for example, or, you know, there's some disease resistance. You got you to constantly select on all of those traits. It's kind of like a balancing act. So you need to be aware of all the traits that you're looking at in your colony. But if you were just to select on one trait, like an example would be a colleague of mine, Dr. Rob Page, he used to uh, select for pollen hoarding bees. So this is also a heritable trait that can be selected for. So he was doing bidirectional breeding. So he had highs, lines, and low lines. The high lines that produced the most pollen, they were these those colonies were not productive. They were just single unit colonies, meaning they were only in one hive body. And they had like nine frames and maybe only five of those frames had bees on them. And then maybe two of those frames just have little pockets of brood. So selecting on one trait can also harm, you know, a honey production, for example. I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you if there were trade-offs. So it sounds like there are quite a bit of trade-offs. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very tough. For bee breeding, is, it's a process. It's not really a goal. You don't, you don't look at something, you don't say, well, I want to have colonies that are the nicest bees possible and they're all yellow or, or they're all dark bees, whatever. You, you have to constantly select on that trade. So with my biting, we have to continue selecting for that trade or you can lose it within 10 generations with certain traits that it'll be completely gone. Some traits disseminate out more than others. So you constantly have to select. So that's the biggest challenge. One of them with bee breeding is that constant pressure of having to select and then having the resources to do it. Here in the U.S., there's just a handful of true bee breeders. So it's a, it's a small group, but it's important. And it seems to be growing now. There's a big interest among beekeepers or micro breeders, we call them, that are getting involved in these things. So the, the most important thing or one of the important things, I think, is you know, to have micro beaters in each state, so to speak, where if they're producing local stock, that's important. Purchasing queens from different parts of the country that could possibly not do as well in your area. So having bees for a specific area is important also. That can tolerate. Oh, well, I mean, they're, you know, a lot of the honey, the honey producers, I mean, they have to be pollinators first, right? So yes. I would think, I mean, so the, the honey, the big honey producers, they're shipped all around like the United States and you know, in other countries, all around those countries, like I've heard in, you know, in February, they'll go to Northern California for almonds and then they'll move around the country as different plants, you know, come into bloom. What what happens to their behaviors during yeah. almond season versus like during blueberry season or tomatoes or I don't know, whatever else they, they pollinate? Do they change very much? Yeah, that's a, a great question. There's a lot of answers, but basically I was in the Central Valley a few years ago with a commercial beekeeper just to experience it myself. So as you know, they they have like a million and a half colonies that are trucked there every year. So for me, you can kind of think of the Central Valley, Valley area with all these, it's kind of like a brothel. You have all these viruses and diseases that are vectored between all these million and a half colonies during almond pollination. So varroa mites, deforming virus, black and many things, there's robbing. So it's it's something that needs to be looked at and that's still continuing today. So they bring them back to the States. Like here in Indiana, we have a commercial beekeeper that goes there every year and then they bring their colonies back, but they also unfortunately bring back some of those 
pests and pathogens. So it's a perfect environment. It's kind of like a mixing bowl, so to speak, a cocktail of viruses. And viruses are mutating also. So there's different versions of virus. So it's a it's really a big problem. So I'm I'm hoping in the future that the growers like in California and the commercial beekeeping industry, they can change the logistics of how they're operating. For example, maybe allow more the growers could allow more native plants to grow. And that would also allow native pollinators to live in the soils there. And it would help increase production maybe. And it would just be little steps like that would would help. But it's a complex thing. It's a very complex process. Um, what, what would you say are some of the, um, the toughest questions that you're working on right now? What do you, are you trying to find the optimal breeding plan to create the perfect bee that you know, still produces plenty of honey, but grooms adequately? Or like, what, what are things that you're working on in earnest right now? Um, just maintaining what we've already established and then maybe incorporate, right, like right now, we, our bees perform well in our area. They Because again, we're not just selecting on that one hierarchical trait, mite biting. We also look at honey products. So our population of bees does really well. They produce lots of honey. They, they are gentle and I think for me, it would be great. One of my goals with our our stock, we call it, would be that maybe in the future, we could have a cross between VSH bees and mite biting bees, and then maybe make those available to the commercial industry also. And then also on the genetic side in the, in the future, we're, we're thinking about us, um, incorporating MAS or marker-assisted selection into our breeding program because in the past we've strictly selected on phenotypic traits. So now we're going to start looking at marker assisted selection. So we're going to be genotyping all the colonies. Well, that's what I was. That's one thing I forgot to ask you. Um, do you think grooming behavior arises epigenetically in response to stresses, or is it? Uh, do you believe it's at the genetic level? It's both. I mean, we've only we've we've identified one gene. We just had a paper published. A year ago, I think today, or a year ago this week, it's norexin 1, or norexin gene. So this is responsible for, for grooming. So there's a more schematic response in the bee's brain, for example, in the high groomers versus the low groomers. But there's really a lot of unknowns. We don't know as far, you know, we don't have markers, for example, to really select on this trait now. So like, for example, when I say markers, like in microsatellites, they call them, is fancy term. So in the chromosomes, there's regions, there's different alleles. So there's different variations of, of different genes. So there's a lot of, explex- we need to explore more to find more of these variations in genes. So I think... But um, what would modulate grooming behavior in already living bees? And then, you know, perhaps again, this could point to epigenetic changes, but... Yeah, if... Yeah, if has, that, has that been observed, like seasonality or food or... I know other stresses, do they lead to more grooming behavior? Yeah, that's a good question. There's the problem associated, like if you have, a, say, for example, a colony of bees that is high grooming or high VSH or whatever, high pollen boarding. If you take that bee and you take it into another environment, what happens is the queens, the daughters, when they go out on their mating flights, they mate with all the local drones in that area. So if, if they mate with a drone that has zero VSH or mite biting, they will inherit that. So it'll be they'll lose the trait by 50% within the first generation. 
So it's, it's, it's something that has to be maintained as far as, mm. but the environment isn't a factor too. I mean, so there's already, there's, we're wanting things now, you see, as human beings, we want to have, but mother nature is also, there's honeybee, in every honeybee colony, there's low levels of mite biting and VSHB. It's just all these traits have to be selected on. So you can take any stock of bees, for example. You can take bees that nobody's selecting anything on, and you could bring those in and select for, you can tease out these traits. So it's just a process of elimination, so to speak, by the ones that the good ones and the bad ones. So you eliminate all the ones that fail the, the first test. It takes a few years to get a breeding program established. Within about five years, you should start seeing some results with 100. Okay, gotcha. Well, Crispin, very good. What's the best way for uh, people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, they can just Google the, the Purdue Bee Lab or the Harper Lab. Well, I just excited. We just have we just hired a new assistant professor in our department, Dr. Brock Harper. He's my new boss, actually, and he's a fantastic geneticist. And so you just can uh, Google uh, mite biting bees or the Purdue Bee Lab or Harper Lab. Okay. Well, very good. Christmas, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.